My name is Callum Coomber, and I'm here with Mark Reed Blatovich. Together, Mark and I formed the duo The Sing and the and we're currently in the process of writing an album. In this series, Wordlender, we speak to a guest artist every week who has some connection to the landscape in their day-to-day practice. For our first instalment, we're thrilled to introduce Bennett Hogg, a composer, sound artist, improviser and academic writer based in the northeast of England, who has, since 2003, taught composition, sound art and musicology at Newcastle University. Welcome, Bennett. What have you been doing recently? Uh, what have I been doing recently? Well, apart from preparing some counterpoint exercises for first year students this morning, um, I've been um, I've been trying to explore an idea um, partly inspired by a, a, an article that I'm, I'm, I use a lot in my teaching and in my own work by a guy called Michael David called Towards a Dark Nature Recording. And I'm sort of adapting uh, Alvin Lucier's idea of I'm sitting in a room, you know, I mean, everyone's done a version of it now. Good friend of mine at the university, John Bowers, has just done. We're sitting in a Zoom, and done a, a kind of you know an endless loop in Zoom, getting more and more distorted. But my idea with him, I'm standing in a field, is what it's going to be called, was to try and build up a series of documentary recordings of a field just basically near the bottom of my street, uh, which is surrounded on one side by a main road and a river, and on the other side by the main East Coast railway line. Uh, between Edinburgh and London, actually between Aberdeen and London, really. Um, and it also has on, next, uh, on the edge of it um, an enormous sewage works. So it's a really attractive part of the country, as you can tell. Um, but it's it's the first field that we walk through when we take the dog out for a walk. And so it's it's quite an interesting place because there's lots of birds there. There's a, a really nice open sense of space. There's lots of trees surrounding it. But of course, there's also huge amounts of noise pollution. And my idea was to try and do it, I'm sitting in a room, but by recording one day and then going back the next day and playing it back and recording it. And gradually the um, the noise pollution will probably build up. Uh, it hasn't quite worked yet. I've done a few just basic experiments on it and the, the acoustics are not working in the way that I expected them to. I'm not getting any phasing effect. So I think I'm going to try shifting the mics around and getting some different images to, to, to work with. Um, I just thought it'd be a nice sort of playful way to sort of make a point about, you know, noise pollution, but that, you know, things continue despite it. Uh, so that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm playing around with in my spare time at the minute. I can imagine there'd be many different sounds with the sewage works and the train line. You can probably hear planes overhead. I know around here you can hear planes all the time. Yeah, we, we don't get that many up here i'm up north not morpeth in northumberland and we do get the odd one coming over and you can hear them if the wind's in the right direction or if it's a very cold day you can hear them taken off from the airport at newcastle but that's about 15 miles away um so yeah so it's it's mostly road traffic and and the railway line uh actually the railway line makes an enormous diversity of different sounds because it's a main line we get obviously passenger trains of different sizes um but we also get some enormous goods trains coming up and down uh, and I really love the sound of the big goods trains. I think it's just, a, it's it's actually that sort of constant rumble is actually quite beautiful in its own way, you know. Uh, and they never stop as well. So you, the momentum that they yeah. have as they go by has, yeah. yeah. Well, you can you can kind of hear the momentum, you know, you can hear the, 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 the surge of it. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, 
it's an interesting and because it's a very low frequency sound it doesn't interfere terribly with you know the sorts of communication of the sort of creatures that are are living around there they tend to be very high frequency birds and stuff like that actually one of the ironies about the doing i'm standing in a field thing i just did as an experiment i just did 16 recordings all on the same day sort of towards the end of the afternoon and actually when i mixed them all together and expected to hear this overwhelming sort of road noise actually the loudest thing was the birds because of course they were starting to gather for the evening and they've just started singing in the evenings round about now. And I ended up with this kind of, you know, sort of Zanakis, like kind of cloud of birds twittering, which completely drowned out the road, which is, I mean, there was kind of an interesting, you know, an interesting little message in there somewhere, I think. Yeah, I think that like touches on a lot of the, um, the, the kind of, or ideals, the kind of ideas of our project, you know, like the kind of interacting with your locality and also, uh, interacting with these things that aren't just what we see as like natural so it's not just the birds it's it's the railway line it's the sewage works it's the road it's everything um, so yeah I think that's quite that's quite similar to what we we're trying to do I guess and the sewage works has 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 a really important um, environmental role to play not only does it you know mean the sewage that gets pumped into the river isn't quite as toxic as it might be but certainly um, in the winter, um, it's completely surrounded by rooks, starlings, jackdaws. They all go there and feed on whatever's floating around in the air. And in the summer, um, the, it's just completely covered with swallows, swifts, house martens, because, of course, the sewage attracts lots of flies. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a um, it's kind of an ugly thing in some ways, but uh, it, 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 it is part of an environmental niche, you know. So I guess we've just covered it a little bit, but I was going to ask about how you engage with landscapes in your in your practice. Um, I noticed you've done a lot of stuff with with wind and um, and with water as well. Do you like to chat about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a there's a long history of you know music about landscape and and soundscapes that you know claim to represent landscapes and stuff like that. And I think I was always more interested in trying to tune into the dynamic forces that make a landscape, because of course, you know, we don't live long enough and we don't have slow enough perception to see hills rising and river valleys expanding and stuff like that. But I've always, I've, I've always sort of loved the idea that the landscape is changing constantly. It's just, we don't live long enough to really notice it. Although actually the farm I grew up on, because uh, it was on old, um, there was a lot of old uh, coal mines underneath it in Northumberland. Um, actually, some of the fields did change shape from year to year and they, they sort of collapsed and subsided um, and ponds formed in them, basically. Um, but, um, yeah, no, so I, I, like, I like the idea of trying to engage with the forces that shape a landscape, in particular water, um, but also wind. I've done a lot of experiments um, using my violins often, uh, I've got lots and lots of violins that I use outdoors, um, holding them in the wind and, and, and using them almost like aeolian harps. But you also find that you can actually change the sound. You can push it into the wind and, and, and it, that sort of increase in speed. You've got the wind coming to the violin, the violin going into the wind. You can get all sorts of nice gestures, quite electroacoustic gestures uh, out of that. And I've done quite a lot of improvisations in the wind with... Um, good friend of mine, the flautist uh, Sabina Fogel, 
who's part of the Splitter Orchestra in, in, in Berlin, uh, but is also somebody who's worked with me a lot over the years on, on um, Landscape Quartet and other projects we've done. And we've done things where we've tried to tune into the wind on a particular day. She's using her flutes and playing them with the wind. We've got microphones inside them, microphones inside my violins, and we do duets. We're connected together on headphones um, so we can hear what each other's doing. And we do these kind of improvisations with the wind. And it's a sort of a way of experiencing the wind uh, sonically, but also feeling like you're kind of interacting with it. And it's, it's similar to what I do in the rivers. Um, I do a similar thing with immersing violins, again, microphones inside the bodies, immersing the violins into the water um, and uh, finding how the different currents, the different pressures of water produce different harmonics on the strings um, and again it's a kind of uh, I like this idea of mapping the river which is of course as Heraclitus tells us always different always the same you know we never step in the same river twice so but, but also you feel as if you're kind of just for a moment more connected to this this force that's actually it is actually changing the landscape it's moving bits of the earth around it's digging holes in it it's shifting things further down river uh, and of course it supports this amazing uh, ecosystem uh you know the, the 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 things in the river but around the river the very special niches and it's it's just really um I, I like this sense of feeling in connection as i say with the forces that are passing through the landscape rather than the landscape seen in that more sort of picturesque sense of a of a visual you know, disposition in space. Uh, I think it's one of the one of the 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 the, the, the things that I am. Um, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of academic research on on the, this idea of landscape, and and you know, some of it's politically quite problematic landscape. So it's um, uh, it's quite nice to sort of instead feel you're connecting to the those transient energies, the energies that constantly come and go, and that and that shape the landscape. You know weathering i guess you know do, do you mean the the idea of talking about land in a political sense being controversial or or something else? well i think i think i mean there's um and there's a there's a very famous textbook in in geography which was published in maybe even the late 80s and it's 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 a very explicitly sort of marxist um critical theory perspective on it but it's it's interesting talking about how you know the the representation of landscape um, was often very much tied to the idea of the ownership of land, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the beautiful picturesque landscape where, you know, if there are humans in it, um, they're usually very lower class humans uh, and they're there as sort of decoration rather than as any kind of, you know, fundamental, um, I suppose, socio-political representation of their role within the landscape, you know. Uh, and then, you know, you have, you know, towards the, the later 18th and the 19th century, you know, you have the, the portrait of the, the landowner in their, in their fields, the Gainsborough portrait of, um, who is it? I can't remember their names now. Mr. and Mrs. Somebody with their Spaniel. And, you know, they're, they're there framing this, this uh, uh, estate that's theirs, you know. So there's, there's all sorts of problems with, with with landscape and the way that landscape as an idea can sometimes um, detach us from from the earth that we live on, you know, we tend to think of it as as being framed and as sort of out there and something we stand here and look at and we're at the centre of the picture. And uh, so yeah, so landscape, soundscape, um, 
they're really exciting, interesting things to think about, to work with. But uh, they don't come without a certain amount of baggage, you know, a certain amount of political baggage, I guess. Um, just a quick question about the violin thing, because um, that's definitely, um, when I first heard about that, I immediately looked it up and it was uh, very worthwhile looking it up. It's, it's absolutely great. Um, but I just, I wondered actually how the, um, how you get the water to resonate on the violin like is it just a is it just a pickup in the violin like under the bridge or this what i do is i i use these little little dpa stage mics they're really quite nice quality omni mics about that big put them inside the violin through the f holes and then of course because the violin's going to go in the water i seal the f holes up with the electrician's tape uh, which makes the violins look quite ugly in videos but um that's just that's just how it is you know uh, the mics are about 300 quid a piece so i'm not going to get them wet you know uh, and then so basically yeah you basically you've got to get into the river and you you push the necks of the, viol the violins the violins upside down like that and the water comes up to about here uh and basically you um usually i'll 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 tune them so we've got one couple of quite slack strings a couple of quite tight ones um, because the very tight strings will only play if the water is quite fast, it's quite high pressure, whereas the lower strings will play in a much slower current. And so as you move across the river and explore the river, you get quite different notes. You don't just get the same note off the string because it's, it's like an Aeolian harp. What you're really hearing is harmonics uh, rather than just the fundamental tones. And so you, you, get, you, you actually can sort of, you can both feel the different currents in the river as you go through them but you can also shape what you're sounding by am i pushing it into the current if, of course if you if you let it move back against the current like this it goes silent because it the, the pressure water drops so it's actually quite interactive you have quite a quite a, a, a strong sense of interacting with the uh, with the instrument but also with it with the river itself you know uh and it's yeah it's 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 different every time that's what that's kind of what's you, it's unexpected. Uh, it, really, different rivers sound different. You know, when you when you do this with them. Over the last week, actually, Mark and I have been experimenting a bit with um, with, with sounds and the water. We in one of the tracks we've um, used singing under the water. So that was quite fun experimenting with that in in the bathtub. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the first things you you do realize is the kind of that the force that you have to to sing with and the yeah, the, the effect of it on, on your voice is quite incredible. Yeah, and and not to breathe and not to take breaths between the phrases as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a real challenge. Like you need to you need a completely different singing technique, really, to sing underwater. And are you recording that uh, with with um, hydrophones under the water, or are you recording it above water, the muffled sound? I, I did when I did it. I did both actually. So, I, so it was kind of interesting to see the difference in, um, like, as I got, I did every pitch, like, slowly getting closer to the water and under a couple under the water. So it was like just the difference actually in harmonics, even when you're just get, getting close to the surface, uh, is is really cool. And obviously, once you're underneath, you just it's just this like cataclysmic like babble, really. <laughs> just, yeah, because of the bubbles and everything. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 really. That's cool. I did some experiments a couple of years ago with Sabina in a river up here in Northumberland with Sabina Fogel. Uh, and we did things like putting, um, I've, I've got these ceramic pots 
and sort of putting them under water with hydrophones. Um, obviously they're full of air and then letting the water just very gradually bubble out. And Sabina's listening to it on headphones and she's improvising with a flute on the riverbank with it. It was kind of fun. We got all sorts of interesting sort of gurgly, blubbery kind of rhythms and stuff. We, we didn't really take it any further or do anything with it. So yeah. I look forward to hearing that when you when you get some tracks together with it. Because I've been enjoying listening to some of the stuff you've been doing, the, 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 the sort of the very socially distanced um, stuff you've been doing with uh, Markdown in Suffolk and, and you... Um, uh, Sorry, Callum down in Suffolk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Callum, you're in Suffolk, yeah. Yeah, I'm in Suffolk. Yeah. yeah. Mark's up in Edinburgh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Okay. Um, the sort of east east coast, you know, um environmental sound boys here. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We we actually tried to choose um s similar ecosystems um when we chose our locations for, for the recordings to try to yeah, to try and capture some some potentially similar soundscapes. There's an amazing place just up the coast here, and there'll probably be examples of it, certainly examples of it up past um, past the Firth of Forth. But about seven and a half thousand years ago, there was a, a tsunami. Part of Norway basically fell off. Um, there's a big shelf off the coast of Norway, and it, it collapsed, caused a huge tsunami, and it basically devastated the entire northeast coast of Britain. Um, and it, what it basically did was it flattened all the coastal forests um, and they basically filled up with peat and they're sort of still there. And every so often, if there's a particularly big storm, it washes all the sand off the beach at a place called Law Hawksley. And um, there are these seven and a half thousand year old trees that are they've still got bark on them. Uh, birches, aspens mostly. Yeah, I've got these bits of like seven and a half thousand year old uh, wood with bark on it and one of these pieces I, I, I dug up I peeled the birch bark off it and there was a mosquito underneath it seven and a half thousand year old mosquito because um, you know these have these have been buried in in peat for seven and a half thousand years so and I, I, I like the, the the idea that there is this there are these things that are sort of still there just you know just still whole they haven't rotted they're not, nothing's happened to them they're just these trees more or less as they fell over and some archaeologists have examined parts of it and they found human footprints and evidence of you know stone axes that have been used obviously to try and get some of this wood to do something with it if they found you know axe marks and all sorts of stuff uh, down there hidden hidden in this you know this submerged forest that's been there for forever you know it's quite yeah, you, you know, again, you know, talking about, you know, connecting to those energies and the, the, those forces that shape the landscape, you know, uh, kind of fascinates me, you know. Um, last time we, we chatted a bit about um, the history of music um, and nature, in quotes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I, I hadn't realised how far, how far back um, Kind of composers had been you know, interacting with with these topics. I mean, there's you know in the in the particularly in the the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries when you know people started trying to write histories of things. Um, a lot of um, I guess starting with mythologies and legends, but then starting to become almost accepted facts, which of course they weren't. Uh, was the idea that you know human music 
was inspired by the sounds of nature. Lucretius in the, when is it, 400 BC, around three, 400 BC, talks about how, you know, before we had our own music, we imitated the singing of birds with our mouths, which doesn't seem plausible to me. Uh, we could whistle maybe, but um, uh, I don't think we could sing, but that's, that's you know, and that, that you know, particularly in the in the sort of the medieval and, and the early renaissance period that becomes part of that sort of scholastic accepted wisdom but even someone like um mozart's father leopold mozart in his treatise on violin playing uh he reviews the history of music by saying that you know um it was after the flood in in egypt that people heard the sound of wind blowing through the reeds and that's where music comes from and all these kind of uh, wonderful mythology and it's 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 funny because it goes right up into the the sort of period of high modernism with with you know Webern's path to the new music uh, he's talking about you know that you know atonality is simply the next logical natural development uh implied by the harmonic series which is of course sadly absolute rubbish because the harmonic series and uh 12 tone uh composition couldn't be further apart 12 tone music's dependent on equal temperament uh and of course just intonation uh, I don't think you could do um, twelve-tone music in just intonation. It might sound interesting. I have to say, just been listening to a lot of Ben Johnston recently. His some of his um, uh, microtonal uh, string quartet works. Oh yeah, and, they're great. Uh, just beautiful, you know, absolutely just beautiful things. So there's all of that sort of history. But then you, you, you've got you know the 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 idea of music being represented in uh, music representing nature or whatever. Um, and then uh, I say just yesterday I was I was writing a lecture for my students on the work of Harry Parch, uh, and you know it's it's just fascinating to see the number of times musicians, composers, artists, at least um, what psychologically almost ground their work in in natural phenomena. Uh, and it's, you know, it's it, to me, it's one of the ways that, I mean, it, it's both very problematic, but it's also very hopeful, you know? Um, you know, sometimes finding ways to represent nature can be a way of, of holding it at a distance, and it can be a way of trying to exercise control over it, but it can also be a way of finding an empathetic connection to nature. You know, there's a um, one of the tracks of yours I was listening to with the curlews. I remember having this idea one day when I was listening to curlews outside. What would it feel like to have a body that could make that sound, you know? And of course, I can't be a curlew. I don't know what a curlew feels like. But just that, that instinct to kind of, that instinct to imitate, my mises, to imitate, uh, what what sort of a different being would I be if I did that? And does that maybe help me to at least connect to, empathise with that sort of radically other creature, which is a curlew, you, you know, off there in the middle of the moors? So, you know, it's a, it's a rich and complicated um, area to explore, actually. And obviously... Today, one of the reasons why Mark and I are exploring these themes is because of the, the ecological um, climate crisis. No, I think it's it's one of the things I got inspired with recently. Um, there's a, a really interesting 
literary theorist called Kate Rigby, who teaches down at Bath Spa University. And she's done a lot of stuff re-examining the likes of Coleridge, Wordsworth, uh, to an extent Keats, these kind of romantics who, you know, for several decades, they've sort of been, what's the word? Um, not so much out of fashion, but it, it's it's it the kind, particularly the kind of masculinities they represent, um, has been you know quite seriously challenged. And Kate's one of the the sort of critics who's who, who's worked a lot on on the Romantics, and has you know done a certain amount of deconstructive analysis, particularly of their relationship um, or their representations of of women. But then she said she suddenly realized that there was something there that she could take that was kind of useful. And, and so within the sort of field of what they're now called eco-criticism, trying to find ways to reevaluate their work, some of which is kind of canonical, you know, a wandered lonely as a cloud, you know, everybody knows it. Um, are there ways that we can make stronger critical and political connections between the natural environment under the, the, the colossal stresses it's under right now and some of these canonical works. In other words, how, how might, might, might we rethink how we read those, um, those, uh, those works in the, you know, the Anthropocene and the environmental crisis? And I've been trying to do a similar thing myself in my more ac academic work. You know, what does it mean to listen to Beethoven's pastoral symphony now, you know? Most of the musicologists who talk about the pastoral, um, pastoral, of course, is, is actually about people. Pastoral is shepherds, you know, uh, and, and that, that's what pastoral means. And so, you know, four of the five movements are all about, you know, people, you know, the, the pleasant feelings arriving in the country, the scene by the brook, the, et cetera. It's all very human. And then in the middle, between the fourth, uh, the third and the fifth movements, the, the storm erupts. And it's always been said, ah, and this is, you know, this is nature. Uh, this is all powerful nature, red in tooth and claw kind of thing, you know, and it, it's this sublime moment that bursts through and exceeds the human. And I think now the, the kind of storms we're having in this world, they've got very little actually to do with nature in, in that romantic sense. They're anthropogenic, you know. Uh, and so you know, can we listen to the, the, the pastoral symphony the same way again, you know? What kind of what kind of critical perspectives might listening to the pastoral make us have to ask about you know the world we're in, uh, the world that we're making actually you know this this world. I, I, it's just I've just started thinking about but um, and combining that kind of critical historical reevaluations rethinkings how do, how do we how do we change our listening so that we include um, we include the crisis. In our listening you know we don't listen to uh, uh, i mean you know the sort of classic fm sort of you know let's get in a nice warm bath with beethoven kind of thing um and that that's in a sense that's one of the things that i'm sort of saying i'm, I'm quite critical of the idea of landscape for example oh isn't it lovely isn't it beautiful um but 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 yeah can we can we rethink how we listen uh by by reevaluating these these historical works that you know explicitly connect uh, or claim to connect with nature, you know, Beethoven's cuckoo and his nightingale and stuff. You know? Well, I, re I really hope we can. <laughs> I think we're running out of time, so unfortunately we'll have to bring bring this to an end. But thank you so much for, for chatting with us. It's, 
It's been a pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you for asking me and uh, including me. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing how the, the artistic side of your project develops as well, the music, because I uh, had a chance to listen to three or four of the tracks and uh, I really like the way that they're shaping up. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a clarity and a delicacy and a connectedness uh, and a sense of space that I find really, uh, I find really encouraging, really attractive. Thanks. Thank you. Make sure to send you an album when we're finished. <laughs> By all means, just drop me an email. I'll send you my send you a postal address. Brilliant. Lovely. Good stuff. Cool. All right. Thanks very much, Bennett. Cheers. Cheers. Bye now. <laughs>